We have a surprise for all of you. The surprise is so many. A, we have it's a few threefold. Surprises. It is threefold. I agree. A or one. We are here. We're back just for this episode. You got to see like middle brow new episode pop up, and then we're gonna fly away into the night for another ten ten months or so, and then we'll be back. Brad, <laughs> we really appreciate your consistent loyalty to this podcast and to Every us. Every time I get Brad's three dollars in my bank account, I feel so <laughs> guilty. I'm like, Brad, I'm sorry. I'm the worst. And I also haven't done research on the artist he wanted me to, and it's just been. Uh, but why does at he love least, us? Maybe he's Brad. I hope you know she hasn't done research on almost any artist. So it's not. This is the first time. It's not something personal. Also, I just learned today. Okay, here's the second part of our threefold. Um, we're together right now mm-hmm. in the same house. Not, not in the same room. Nope. There's too much of an echo. If, if someone would love to come be our mixer. And figure out how to get us in the same room. Please. If anyone is good at audio. Maybe we would go visit each other more often. (laughs) And it would be so much more entertaining to like look at your face in real life. So much better. I literally brought this book because I was like, we will talk and I'll show her things. And now I'm just like, I'm just going to set the microphone on it. (laughs) But okay, so we are together. And what I learned today while she was talking was that she, I'm pretty sure I'm hearing this right. She would much rather research and present Mm -hmm. than to be a commentator like I am. 100%. And like, not to relinquish those those, that work, but I always feel guilty that she has to do all the presenting and the and the research. Um, but I feel like I feel the same. I'd rather just comment. (laughs) (laughs) I hope. So I hope our maybe listeners we just found our new flow. Yeah, I hope our listeners would be okay with that because I know we have very different presenting styles, and maybe they just love how you present. And it's just like, yeah, they said something mm. like it's more like drunk history. <laughs> oh, great, thank you. <laughs> Without being drunk, it's just like you get the vibe of My it. My sober brain yeah. is just stupid. No, I Lindsay. love it. It like gets the point across in a fun way. I'm like. This is the fact. It was this date at this time. They were in this location. They were around these That's so people. True. I, I don't have dates near the end. Although because you're here and you ask me so many, so many questions, <laughs> ugh, like I should have answers. Like I researched. I was like, oh, I had an interview in one of the parts and, I, and it was like RT or something. And I'm like, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm like, oh. Oh, I should find out who RT is. She's going to ask. Because <laughs> I was like, where is it? And I'm like, I don't know. And I was about to give up. And I'm like, I should find out. Good job. <laughs> Thank you. Look at me. <laughs> and also, I would love to give you props because this intro is going better already. Yeah. I would love to give you props because people, I feel like the, when people message us or comment or on the few reviews that we have, mm-hmm. like, that's one of the things they say is like, we're fun. But that it's like really well researched, and I feel like that's do mostly due to you. That? Yeah, thanks. You know nope, I didn't know that. Yeah, that it's like not that it's like we are t- to be taken seriously, but like we make it fun. Like that's usually the comment that people say. That's perfect. That's what we try to do. That's exactly what we're going for, guys. <laughs> Jeff, hey, hey, Jeff, <laughs> hey, Jeff. <laughs> Um, okay, so is that all the surprises we have? We're together. New episode. Oh, last surprise. Are you ready? Oh, yeah. It's not yes. really a surprise. 
Well, yeah, for them because they clicked on yeah. it. Yeah. So surprise for us. <laughs> surprise. Uh, this is a Keith Herring podcast. This is about Keith Herring. From now on, it's a podcast is, about. Yeah, it's never done. That's why it's so long. We have so much. An eight part episode. <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> People are like, we get it. <laughs> Guys, we get it. Anyway, Keith Herring, which is really exciting because a if I had to if I had to mention an artist that I most felt connected to like mm, not necessarily conceptually but like like belief wise or like a lot of the reasons like why he makes work and what he wants to do with his work lined up with my own in in a way that I didn't even know like I liked his work then I bought this and I had felt similar things as he did and then I bought this book and I read all his journals because he kept a journal and I was like, oh, my God, we're way more in line than I thought. Do you keep a journal? Not anymore. And I wish reading his journals, I really wish I did because it was so interesting to hear his thoughts from when he's in college. It started while well, these journals start when he's in college until he died. And to have that first person perspective, even for him to look back on or for yeah. you to look back on your own thoughts I just think is really valuable and like, yeah, it was really interesting. So that's all I have to say. Okay. Um, where were we? Welcome to Middlebrow. Middlebrow is a mostly contemporary art podcast hosted by two completely average middle of the road. Human artists. Human artists. And that would be, that would be me and my best friend, Lindsay Schultz. That was Olive Moya who just said her name. No, actually, Technically, my name is Lindsay Schultz Peasley now. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Lindsay Schultz Peasley. We talk about art. We try to be super, super interesting. And um, it's for artists and people who just like art and want to know more about it. (laughs) (laughs) Something was off there, but I'm not Mm -hmm. quite sure what it was. Basically, just it's about having fun learning about art and not feeling like you're in an awkward cold museum setting where everyone's just staring at you and judging you and like what do you think about this and you're like yeah. i don't know and then like you should get out of here and then yoko ono's just screaming into a mm-hmm. microphone and you're like why yeah why is it well let me tell you i we are here to tell you why yoko ono has to scream into a microphone but we're gonna have to do research first. not today though <laughs> <laughs> Today is a different story altogether. Although Yoko Ono is in this story because Keith Haring knew everybody. Mm -hmm. And I'm not joking about that. I believe it. Everyone. Are we ready? I think so. Are we ready? It's 50 pages. We should get going. Yeah, this is going to take forever. Are you ready? First you of see all, him? he's adorable. He's the cutest his person. His wristwatch, his glasses, his cute Adidas with the like tongues pushed forward and his roll top jeans and his high tube socks. Everything about him yeah. is so cute. He's like balding, but he has this cute curly patch right on the top mm-hmm. of his head. Okay, so that's him. He's if you've never seen him, look a picture up. There's lots of pictures of him because he was very all of his work was very well documented. And him like pictures of him working mm-hmm. are there everywhere. 
Okay, so Keith. I really like the painting behind him. I love Mm -hmm. it so much because everything's so beautifully flat and matte. And it's so nice. I do too. And I honestly don't know where this paint, like I didn't, this painting looks different to me. He usually didn't use like softer colors. Mm -hmm. He was a much more like primary color guy until kind of the end he started using some softer colors. But I love this um, one. That painting is like my favorite and I don't even know where Hmm. it is in the scheme of things. Okay. So Keith is a visual artist. He made lots of different things, but mainly drawings and paintings. And he's very famous for his murals. Uh, He really focused on making work with or like engaging the public in some way. In a way that they were like participating in it or just. Yeah, like with children, he would have them paint with him. Okay. In what we're going to get into with like the chalk drawings, that's kind of like performative in a way that includes people. Um, so the majority of his most famous work was made throughout the eighties. And basically if you're our age, you probably had a Keith Haring shirt or knew someone who did. If you haven't heard of Keith Haring, you like definitely know his work. You just might not know his name. And most likely you or one of your friends for sure has a Keith Haring t-shirt from Urban Outfitters that one of you own. There's no way that you don't. Yeah. You absolutely have it. And I was telling Lindsay, like, when I was looking up images for this, it was kind of annoying at first because Google, if you just search Google images, like the first two lines were just ads or products or like things that you could buy with Keith Haring's art Mm -hmm. on it. And it was kind of annoying. Like I'd look up a painting and there was like, well, you could get it on a poster if you want. Mm -hmm. Like, and I was just trying to find the original image of the painting. And if you lived or live in new york you most likely have seen or heard of one of his murals because some of them still exist in new york and um his characters are super recognizable how lame Um, would you have to be to be an artist right now and make fake keith herring work (laughs) really really lame (laughs) um people do it though it's like that lady making those ruth asawa things yes did you see that it's just like um those are exactly another artist's work what are you doing so shamelessly not your idea Uh -uh. okay so most of this information i got from this book that i have um this is huge two inch thick like 12 by 12 bright pink book that the inside covers are just like drawings of dicks, like doodles of dicks, which is the best. Did you see the inside no. cover? <laughs> they are. Just like, they just kind of look like wings also. They do. But they do have like a pink tip, like where the head is, like a pink oh, head. Oh, I can't see that. Um, okay. So in one of the introductory essays, Jeffrey Deitch writes, his assertion that the public has a right to art is the first line of a manifesto an essential element of the of an ethical structure that would characterize his artistic approach to the end if you could sum up keith's work which you shouldn't because there's a lot there's a lot of it that might be it like the public has a right to art yeah he was so and that quote that jeffrey deitch is quoting Mm -hmm. there that was from like his journal like right when he like the first week or month or something that he started art school Uh, So here's what he wrote in his first first month of School of Visual Arts. Uh, The public has a right to art. 
the public is being ignored by most contemporary artists. Art is for everybody. I'm interested in making art to be experienced and explored by as many individuals as possible with as many different individual ideas about the given piece with no final meaning attached. The viewer creates the reality, the meaning, the conception of the piece. So of course he had like concepts of what he was creating um, and like meaning behind his work, but he was more interested in what people had to say. It's like the first time that you really get to see that divide, starting to analyze institutions, their functions, where the power lies, who actually goes into these spaces, who the collectors are, who the like, benefits, where the spaces exist, whose work gets to be shown. So I think the natural instinct for Keith and many people is like, let's take that away. Let's have it be in public. Let's not rely on these places and just make work out in the open. And it's a difficult thing to do also. And I feel like I constantly grapple with this because I do make public work is like, you want both. You yeah. want to be taken seriously by the art world. But you, yeah, that's because, because if you're making work for people that don't have the same context as people in the art world do there's just a different understanding or interest level or whatever it is right and so like you have to be okay with you know i paint a mural and someone thinks it's snakes or whatever and you're just like it's fine it can be snakes if you want it to be snakes okay <laughs> here he, here he is he looks so much like himself already at whatever wow. age that is seven six or seven <laughs> those big glasses so cute. <laughs> and that oversized suit it's just so cute okay that's little baby keith here we go born on may 4th 1958 in redding pennsylvania and raised in Cutstown, pennsylvania he had three sisters, and all four herring children have the first initial K. Like the Kardashians? It's so, yeah, okay. Keith, K, Karen, Karen, and Kristen, which reminds me, which reminds me of these girls in the town that my parents grew up in. We used to go back and visit, and they were called the ABC Girls, and I was so confused at why they called them the ABC Girls for so long, and it's because their parents named them, like, Abby, Brianna, Carly. No something with a d Don't they had do four that. i know <laughs> uh was Keith just, in the middle was he the oldest youngest i think he was in the middle but i don't actually know his dad was an amateur cartoonist oh i know and obviously that had a huge impact on his work you can tell by just looking yeah. at it and although he did not make that connection for a long long time really and he was also no no because I think, as you'll see, like it, he came out of all these other things and he yeah. thought that really influenced him. But like later he was like, oh, yeah, my dad and also like Dr. So he's super influenced by Dr. Seuss, Walt Disney and your grandpa. Oh, by the way, Sotheby's like spelled your name wrong with a T. I just want you to know that. What is their email? <laughs> I don't know, but you should tell them because I was a. Ben. Sotheby's at Sotheby's.com. <laughs> yeah. Listen up, motherfuckers. Spell it right. No tea. Um, so yeah, so he loved all of that. And then also, like he was talking about, kind of his generation was starting to grow up with cartoons and stuff, you know, mm -hmm. um, on TV and like technicolor TV. 
So he feels like a lot of the graffiti artists at that time uh, also had similar aesthetics, just like being raised in the same time period. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh no, Wikipedia what? says that in his early years, he was involved in the Jesus movement. And I was like, you mean, <laughs> you mean like he just went to <laughs> yeah. church or like, what's this Jesus movement? But I guess in the early 70s, there was like an evangelical church, which is like the intense one. Mm -hmm. Um, was appealing to young people with Jesus music that was more upbeat and such, which totally reminds me of when my neighbor brought me to church in high school because I was Catholic and like he seemed so cool with his Christian music. It was just like different, like Jesus, they would pray and be like, Jesus, my friend, like we love. You know what this <laughs> reminds me of? But they were so casual yeah. about Jesus. Did you ever watch The Middle? No. Oh, never mind. The middle child, Sue Heck, goes to kind of like a Jesus Bible study thing. And uh -huh. she has like the biggest crush on the leader guy of it. And he like has a guitar and he always sings Christian rock That's songs. How it is. And she's just That's like how it is. heart eyes for him. <laughs> That's exactly how it was. Well, I didn't have heart eyes for the Christian rock. Did people, you have heart eyes for Switchfoot? I 100% had hard eyes for Switchfoot. And actually, I think there's one of their songs is on my chill mix that I was playing last <laughs> is night. Is it really? Because I just love that song so much. <laughs> um, I love Switchfoot and I loved Reliant K. Was Reliant K a Christian band? Yeah. Hmm. They were like more subdued about it. But in their earlier ones, there was literally songs. It was like, I love you, Jesus. Uh. In a completely unforeseen twist, he later takes a road trip across the country to sell shirts that he made featuring the Grateful Dead and anti-Nixon things. So I wrote this a while back, like years ago, mm -hmm. and I read it to myself now and I can't tell if I'm being sarcastic that it was unforeseen or like why I said it was completely unforeseen. So I don't know, but <laughs> I don't know. That's what he did. But his whole life, I did read in this other thing that he was talking about his childhood and like there was some sort of movement. It was like, if you like love Nixon and you're going to vote for Nixon, leave your car lights, like your headlights on all day on this date. Mm -hmm. And his family had his car light, their car lights on mm -hmm. all day for that day. And he was like so embarrassed and pissed off. Like he knew even at a young age, he was like, fuck this. <laughs> and speaking of the grateful dead, he says, drugs showed me a whole new world. It completely changed me. He's less You're wholesome like, yeah. than you. Yeah, he is. So that was my that was my point. He's wholesome, but also cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he parties was, and does drugs, so we can't be his friend. I know. I know. We're not as cool as him. Okay. Just saying, like he does drugs makes me feel like an eighty year old. They do drugs. Oh my god, he's done some of the drugs. Um. Okay, he says, I was a terror when I was a teenager, an embarrassment to the family, really a mess on drugs. I ran away. I came home stoned out of my mind on downs. <laughs> I'm so uncool. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> Downers? I don't know. I don't understand. Some ex-druggy, please come and help us. Can stoned be like on just downs. anything? It's not just like weed, but it's like, can you be stoned on <laughs> yeah, heroin? Yeah, he's telling us on something else. <laughs> I don't know. It was the 70s. Um, I got arrested for make for stuff like stealing liquor from a... F <laughs> what? Why does a firehouse have liquor? I don't know. 
I clearly didn't read this very well because I'm <laughs> genuinely surprised by this quote. For stealing stuff, stealing, Jesus, for stuff like stealing liquor from a firehouse on my newspaper route, no less. <laughs> so he's delivering newspapers and then being like, oh, look at this liquor in this firehouse. Let's just take Where that. are the firemen <laughs> drinking liquor? <laughs> Just passed They're just out. drunk and passed They're out. stoned on downs. Oops. <laughs> Oops. There's a fire. Now what do we do? <gasps> we're all drunk. Um, he says, me and my friends were making and selling angel dust. What? So that's another fun one. But this is like, er- I mean, listen, I don't know if he kept doing it or not. He probably did. But this is like the only real time he talks about drugs. Wow. Really not ever after that. So he studied commercial art at Pittsburgh's Ivy School for Professional Art for a couple of years. Okay. But then, okay, first of all, I need to tell you, Ivy School does not mean it's an Ivy, Ivy League, League yeah. school. It's just called. I feel like they're trying to trick people yeah. by calling it Ivy School. Yeah, that's misleading. <laughs> not Ivy I don't think they're fooling anyone, though. <laughs> I don't think so either because it's Pittsburgh. Um, okay, but then he read this book called The Art Spirit, wrote in 1923 by Robert Henry. Probably Henry. Robert Henry. You're right. You're, that's probably true. It looks really boring. Here's the cover of it. I don't know Ugh, why. It I would it. never I pick that up. <laughs> Not even in the 70s? No. I would need a much cooler cover. I agree. So, don't know what this book contained, and I didn't look into it. But, but it changed his life? it changed his life. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It was that child's innocent face staring out from the cover. He wait, he okay, dropped so, out because of this. Yeah, so he had this maintenance job, maintenance job at the Pittsburgh Center for the Arts, and he. Wait, are you done with this book? Yeah, I'm done with it. Wait, just changed his life, and then he. Well, what was out. it about it? I don't. I literally don't know. It just like it was mentioned a few times in different articles that like that changed his life. Huh. And that he like. Just, Do you know what the book's about? I, I don't. I don't know. You didn't like Amazon it? No. This is the difference between... Well, I saw the cover and then I was not interested. <laughs> Duh. What's it called? The Art Spirit? Yeah. Henri. Um, He probably read it and was like, this is, sounds like everything I don't want to be a part of. Yeah. I'm dropping out. How to out. not do that. <laughs> okay. So this section is basically about his influences. Okay. Um, so he had this maintenance job at the Pittsburgh Center for the Arts. <gasps> and is this like Goodwill Hunting? So it was kind of like that. And he was able to look at all of these paintings, Jackson Pollock's and Mark Toby, who is kind of like Pollock meets calligraphy. And actually there is some speculation that Pollock saw his right his white writing pieces and then started doing his drip paintings right after and then also jean dubuffet dubuffet (laughs) um please help us jean dubuffet jesus um who is french (laughs) obviously (laughs) and if you look at all the work by these artists it's very indicative of of what keith made it's like filling the whole space quick confident shapes or mark making stuff like that and he was also very influenced by a lecture he saw in 78 by our boy Christo yeah Christo um and Christo was actually the main influence he had for incorporating the public into his work that's awesome yeah he was like I want I want it to be like public Christo would um, be 
the best inspiration for anyone. Absolutely. Like as, this after whole, researching crystals, like I need to make <laughs> outside to make public sculptures <laughs> that are yeah. grand. I think everyone feels that. Well, artists, I think all artists feel that when they, way when they see crystals work, you're just like, yeah. what? This is possible. If you just make a, lo- a ton of technical drawings and then you sell them for millions of dollars, it's possible. I don't know <laughs> it's how really they easy. Do that. I don't even know. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I'd be like, guys, I got these technical drawings. Yeah. Does anybody want to buy them for a million dollars? By the way, at the Denver Art Museum on the top floor, which I have to take you when you come, there's a crystal drawing that's really, really pretty. It's the drawing of the one that goes over the river. Oh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, that kind of stuff gives me chills. I just feel like it's so cool and just beautiful how artists can feed off of each other. On the subject of influences, he was also influenced by Andy Warhol uh, and his unique fusion of art and life. And that's before they were even friends. So, like, he fu- he manifested yeah. his whole life. Like, he was like, I love Andy Warhol. And then Andy Warhol, Warhol and him, like, talked on the phone every day, basically. Aww. It was really cute. Um, and he was also really interested in graffiti when he came to New York and came across Samo, which Basquiat, which is Basquiat, and um, was like really excited about that too, and also became friends with him. Wow. Uh, okay, you'll like this. He was heavily influenced by the writer William Burrow, Ooh. which is a name I've heard. Yeah. And is he in Kill Your Darlings? Yes. Is he in that group? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. I thought so. I was like, he sounds like a kill your darlings guy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> just he from was, his name. Yeah, he was in the little click. Such okay. a good movie. Have you actually watched it? I have watched it one time, yes, okay. but I do not really remember it. Okay. Um, so I should watch it again because I remember I was younger and I like didn't. I don't know. I just wasn't paying attention. Um. Okay, so I looked up. I looked him up, uh-huh. like, and I just wanted a quote of his work. So I'm gonna read this passage real What's quick. What's it this from? Is, this is William Burrow. I have no idea. Here we go. <laughs> is it like from one of I his books? I just chose what, huh? Is it from one of his books? I don't know. I'm sure. Oh. You ready? <laughs> okay. <laughs> it sounds like it's in a book. It's not like just something he said. Or if it is something he said, he's really fucking weird. I think okay. that's also true. <laughs> that's true. Language is a virus from outer space. Nothing is true. Everything is permitted. Smash the control images. Smash the control machine. Happiness is a byproduct of function, purpose, and conflict. Those who seek happiness for itself seek victory without war. America is not a young land. It is old and dirty and evil. Before the settlers, before the Indians, the evil is there waiting. Hustlers of the world, there is one mark you cannot beat. The mark inside. A functioning police state needs no police. Silence is only frightening to people who are compulsively verbalizing. Junk is the ideal product, the ultimate merchandise. No sales talk necessary. The client will crawl through a sewer and beg to buy. He sounds like a fun guy. So he seems like a ton of fun. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, they eventually become friends, and he's really important to Keith's work. What a weird, like... Keith seems so upbeat and it's like, I love kids. Everything is amazing and I want uh-huh. people to be involved. And <laughs> Williams is just like so intense and so like dark and gritty. And <laughs> just the client will crawl through a sewer yeah. and beg to buy. Like that's him. 1978. 
he had a one man exhibition at the other Pittsburgh school. The and Ivy? Then pretty much, yeah. The Ivy League school. Yeah. The non Ivy League school. The non Ivy League school. And then pretty much moved to New York City after that. He okay. studied painting at the School of Visual Arts. And it seems like it's during this time that he starts finding all of these pieces of his work and interests and roughly putting them together. Um, there was a room next to the sculpture studio that was often empty. And so he was on his way home one day from school and he found these huge rolls of white paper because there was like photo studios mm-hmm. in the area and they had the like, so like seamless paper, like seamless paper, mm-hmm. but like tons of rolls of them wow. just on the ground. So he dragged it all back to his studio. Don't ask for permission. Do not. Do not <laughs> just ask for take permission. anything. This whole thing is about not asking for permission. And um, it turned out the paper was like the same length of the floor, nine feet, almost exactly. So he would roll the paper out on the floor and ink paintings of just like abstract shapes and then roll it back up and do another one another day over and over and over and over. Like layering on top of the same nine feet or? No, he had tons of them. Okay. So he'd like roll it up, put it away, start a new one. Yeah, got it. Okay. And then he, this is where I'm like, Keith, we're the same. Then he just started hanging them around school and like videotaping himself making the pieces and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was just a freshman. And so he's getting noticed by seniors and everyone around school, maybe even quote unquote stepping on toes. So a lot of people didn't like this. They thought he was like a show off or like whatever they just had issue with some like cocky little freshman putting his paintings up all over the place mm-hmm. um and so once one of the d- drawings was torn up and left in the hallway in pieces so oh he no took, i know they were just like fuck you you That's little freshman so mean <laughs> i know <laughs> especially at art school it's just like why are you mad that there's a painting on them like, yeah you're ridiculous uh so he took all the pieces and hung them back up like put them back together and hung them up and he didn't care if people were getting jealous Because he figured he wasn't going to just make drawings and then roll them up to be unseen. Like Clifford still. Like Clifford. (laughs) Don't. And then they're still wet. They're still wet. They're all over my house. I have to move my family out because I don't have room for all my paintings. (laughs) My family is really very inconsiderate for existing in this house because my drawings exist here. Um, But he basically was just like, I think everyone else asked for permission is what happened. Everyone else was like, the rules are, this is how you get a show. And he was like, I'm not going to make shit and not show it. I'm just going to find a way to show it. And it wasn't really in a cocky way. It was just more in like a, why ask and wait around for someone to tell me I can do something when I can just do it. Mm -hmm. This is how he got a show at the student gallery, which was on 23rd Street which was normally reserved for older students and people who had been there for some time. People were just so he, interested in what he was doing and wanted to show. Yeah, because he put it up and they were all like, hey, you want to do a show here? And he mm-hmm. was like, yeah, sure. So he did pretty much a similar thing. He covered the walls and the floor with paper and drew all over them. And then he made videos of himself making the work and like painting himself into a corner. He's very flexible. He, what? He's just bending over. His knees are straight. He looks like a giraffe. You bend over with your knees. No, I'm very inflexible. He looks like a giraffe going down to get water. He from does the watering look like hole. a giraffe. I agree with that statement. 
and see that like little corner that there. Looks, like he yeah. would paint himself into that corner and then he would sit that there. That looks like the most uncomfortable position to paint in. <laughs> oh my God. He's very fit. Um, okay. And he's like shirtless and just He's almost always shirtless or he has a crop top on. Like he's very, yeah. He's active. You gotta paint. He's a he's an active man. <laughs> okay. Words. Keith was studying semiotics, mm-hmm. which is, if no one knows, the study of signs and symbols. Like how meaning and signs, like namely in this case, like letters and stuff signify gain meaning and change over time Mm -hmm. and at this time keith was super interested in language and words um going back to our careful our carefree playful friend mr burroughs Mm -hmm. and he was he was all about that so keith actually this is the way he met him or like found out about william burroughs he stumbled he accidentally stumbled across the nova convention one night with his friends and they just walked in there and there was performances by writers and musicians like John Giorno, William Burroughs, Allen Ginsberg. Ginsey! Who is the main guy, right, yep. in that movie. And Rene Ricard, etc. Okay. And him and all his friends were just blown away. Like, their minds were blown. These cute little freshman art school minds were blown. Mm-hmm. And Keith later wrote in his journal, and he said, It brought together all the things I was seeing. The way Samo and Jenny Halzer were using language in the street. Burroughs became a model for the literary component that went with what I thought I was discovering through visual component. Hmm. So he starts using this cut up technique, which is like the Dadaist thing, mm-hmm. which I'll explain. But um, he, he found these glossy letters at the sign shop that you could use to like create some, yeah, a word yeah. on a sign. And so he brought a bunch of those home and he was using just like 13 of them to come up with every different combination of words that he could. Mm -hmm. And Burrow used and often talked about this cut up technique started by the Dadaists. And just to check if we all don't know what Dada is, if you don't have an art background, it's an art movement. Um, It's, it's important and weird and it was a whole thing, but basically (laughs) a lot of times they would, they would use, this cut up method to make poems they'd like take a sentence cut it up and just use a few of the words on each piece and when i looked up this technique to make sure i was thinking of the right thing Mm -hmm. i read that bowie and tom york used this to create lyrics for some of their songs and it like blew my mind i was like oh my god Mm -hmm. duh yeah (laughs) like oh my god they don't make sense it's the cut up technique he was just putting words together (laughs) mind blown (laughs) Um, okay, so yeah, Keith took these 13 letters and arranged them over and over to make phrases like art, art boys, sin, as if no, if no art, lick fat boys. And he would like use all these words and letters and it fueled a whole year of work, basically. Wow. Uh, and there's a bunch of stuff I didn't include that I wish I had time to, but literally this is already 50 pages. But there's a whole bunch of stuff he made. Like he would use newspaper clippings and make think like fake headlines about Reagan and stuff. Um, so this piece is called what do you want to just quick describe it for me? It's called sure. Art Boys Sin Xerox Collage. So it's a grid of right, it's like four different uh-huh. Is it one page that like was just has four? No, different these things? are four different pieces okay. basically. Yeah. But it's hung like two on top and two underneath. It's some man's face. And on the left side, it's like 
the left side of his face and the right side's the right side. The top two, one's a little bit beige in tone and one's pink. And then the bottom one is like black and white and then sepia toned yeah. a little bit. But it says in like cut out bold font says on the top left, no sin. Then on the right, art sin. Bottom left, no fat. On the right, fat sin. But I think it reads... Is it like that? No sin, art sin, no fat. I fat, feel like sin? it's no art sin, 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 no fat, no fat, fat, fat sin. sin. Yeah, yeah. But he made tons of these, and I think Xerox. It's was very like a medium punk zine clip and Xerox and crudely cut out and grainy and gritty and. And this is something that, like, I mean, it's seventy nine. So, like, people in seventy nine and like the early eighties. This is what Xerox was kind of a new thing that people had uh, had available to them yeah um and later he talks about basquiat creating color collages at the school too so like it was i think exciting kids were able to use it and make these quick Mm -hmm. posters or whatever so another aspect of influence tying all the symbol language communication ideas together was graffiti he traveled on trains to get to museums and galleries and he looked at what was drawn on pretty much every surface like in new york and he said the same kind of aggressive fluid lines that were obviously done directly and with very little preconceived plan or any hesitation layered on top of each other and fit around each other. He also noticed that they all had this hard edged black line that unified everything, uh, which he felt was the sign of them being the same generation of kids influenced by the culture of technicolor television and pop cartoon sensibility. <laughs> and here is him and Basquiat. Oh, <laughs> so Keith and Keith and Jean-Michel Basquiat were like r- friend rivals. They were like frenemies. <laughs> yeah, they were at a very they came up at the same time and were at a very similar place in their career at the same time. And so I think they hung out a little bit and they they really liked each other and they saw each other at all these things, but they compared e- themselves to each other all the time. Like. Hmm. Keith said in a later thing that they would be like, oh, why don't I ever get asked to do those things? And then Keith felt the same about like, why don't I get like an exhibition like he did or yeah, whatever? Yeah. So they were definitely like liked each other and looked up to each other. And Keith writes a lot about how much he admired him and felt like he was one of the best artists and biggest influences on him mm-hmm. and his time. He still felt like they were kind of like jealous of each other a little bit. That's normal, though, no matter what field you're in. For sure. So Keith had seen this Sam, like Jean-Michel's tag was Samo, like S-A-M-O, all over the city. And but also like in the inside of his school. So one day there was this kid standing outside the entrance to the school, and there's like a security guard making sure people didn't just wander in off the street. And he asked Keith if he could get him inside. So Keith walked him in, like past the security yeah. guard. Like, were they, they were already friends. friends at this point? They were not. Okay. He was a random guy, and he'd kind of seen him standing around before, but he didn't know. But he was just like, "Yeah, I'll let him in. Yeah. Why not?" So he went to class, and then noticed when he came out an hour later that there were a bunch of fresh tags everywhere and like poems. Like Basquiat would write poems everywhere on yeah. things. And so he like put it together and he was like, oh, this is Samo. <laughs> and so um, another time, Jean-Michel had also met Keith's friends, this guy named John, S- John Sex, obviously not his real name, and Kenny Scharf. Who yeah, was- Kenny Scharf did one of the Peanuts. Um, oh, really? 
Yeah, like the artists who interpreted Peanuts in their own work. Yeah, he was like famous in his own right, but him and Keith were like best best friends. Like hmm. Keith was, I think, the godfather for his children. Oh, wow. And they were really, really close. And Keith, Kenny was with him when he died and stuff. So they were very close. And they were roommates for a long time. So the next time Keith saw Jean-Michel, he was Xeroxing things to make postcards um, like with John Sex and Kenny Scharf. Mm-hmm. So they kind of became friends and they saw each other at clubs and shows. Uh, but Keith says in 81, they grew apart and were, quote, forced into almost a competitive thing because they started showing in exhibitions and doing their own separate things. And that put a strain on their relationship. That's sad. Why wouldn't they like lift each other up and like encourage people to include them in the same shows? I mean, I don't, I think they just both got so overwhelmingly busy and it turned out that they were kind of in this competitive, like, I think it happened slowly, you know, they just kind of fell out and they would totally see each other and be nice to each other and like hang out when they saw each other, but they weren't like call each up, each other up on the phone and be like, how you doing? You know, (laughs) that bums me. So it happens, (laughs) you know, like sometimes that stuff happens and you're like, I wonder why that happened. Like I have people in my life where I'm like, why did that happen? (laughs) I guess it bums me out because in my mind and in the lore of these people, they seem like... <laughs> I thought you were going to say the Lord. <laughs> the Lord. <laughs> like, wow, now we're really getting religious. <laughs> no, no, no. These, myth. Yeah, the like yeah, myth-making of these yes. figures. You think of them as all being super close and so interconnected. So to hear, it makes sense that they're drifted apart and had this competitive thing, but it just bums me out. You know, and there was a lot of publicity around, like there's tons of photos of them together. Yeah. Um. So while at school, Keith was also a busboy at this club called Dance Teria. <laughs> Dance Teria. Dance Teria. Which sounds like a COVID, maybe Dance Teria. Um, it's it like sounds dance like a COVID and nightmare. cafeteria. It is. <laughs> <laughs> your genitals are on display for you to choose from and eat just get them yep. get them while you can dance them while you can um it sounds like a covid nightmare and my own personal nightmare <laughs> this is where why what is it or what do you think it's it a is? club it's like a gay club and he goes to all of these clubs all of the time and he's in the baths all the time and like bathhouses the bathhouses bath oh, okay yeah. and um, he just goes out every night and does this stuff. Wait, why does it sound like you're per- just like, cause it's way too social. Just and- going like, I've never even been to a club. Yeah. I'm just like, no, get me away. <laughs> please, yeah. please, dear Lord, don't make me do this. Um, but he's like Keith and he's bubbly and he loves it. Yeah. So he loves people. <laughs> he loves people. Let me so, tell you about much. some kids. <laughs> Let me tell you how much I love kids. Um, it's like the office little kid lover. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And people were hesitant about letting him around kids basically just because he was a homosexual, which is really sad and weird. Horrible. Yeah. They're like, "Ah, it's contagious. Lord, (laughs) my kids are going to catch it. They're going to think it's okay to be gay, which it's not. We need to get him into Sunday school immediately. (laughs) And. Keith is like, I can tell you all about Jesus. I know lots about Jesus. I also know a lot about drugs if you want to know about that. Um, so he's out all night and exploring his sexuality mm-hmm. and the city and then working obsessively on his art the rest of the time. When does he sleep? 
I don't think that he does. <laughs> I really don't. Based on everything I've read, he does not sleep. Okay, so just so we're clear, I think we have been clear, and I feel like it wasn't something I even had to mention because I feel like he's famously gay, but Keith is gay, and it's like a really big part of his identity, obviously, especially at that time period where like it wasn't okay to be openly gay, and there was this whole new exploration, especially for gay men in like San Francisco and New York, uh, in the baths and like in the clubs mm -hmm. and um, so this was like a very big time period historically for all of that. And he was very involved in that. Is that what Ja Rule, who sang the song in the, cl ja in the club? <laughs> oh, isn't that 50 Cent? 50 Wait. Cent. Is yeah. that what the song's about? <laughs> Absolutely. Let's call up Fiddy and ask him. <laughs> Fiddy seems like he would like run and hide if someone asked him that question. He seems so absurdly trying to be masculine all the time. Okay, here's a quote from Keith about school and that whole time period that makes me love him. Okay, let's hear it. Let's do it. One of the things that started becoming really interesting was that I was combining what was going on at night and what was happening in school as the subject matter of many of my drawings. I was still doing these abstract shapes, but I started being completely obsessed with doing phallic little, I mean, the calligraphy became completely phallic, partly as a way to assert my sexuality and force people to deal with it. And also because there was a lot of guys in my class, supposedly straight guys, guys that had just come from high school, from Long Island <laughs> and Juicy. I can't do it right, but I thought I'd try. Um, who really didn't know why they wanted to be artists. So I continuously flaunted the fact that I was interested in dicks because I could. And because I was spending 90% of my time outside of school obsessed with sex, then that became the subject of my work. So he was like, I'm gay. Yeah. <laughs> like, you guys, just so you know, um, this piece I love, and I could not find a good picture of it online, but it's in my book. There's a really nice image in my book of I it. I love it just because of the, the graph, <laughs> the graph <laughs> paper it's on. It's like, I was like, Lindsay's going to like this vintage too. and Uh-huh. So it's graph paper on the, on the left half covered with. What's the note on the bottom say? Uh, I think it's the, it says for Kenny. 1979. Kenny Sharp? Um, yeah. Uh -huh. And then it says Keith Haring. A cute um, little ripped corner on the right. I know. It's a moment. It's a ripped corner it's moment. such a beautiful moment. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, so the left is just the graph paper that was underneath. Like the whole piece is graph paper. And then on the right, um, completely filled, this whole right side is just these little doodles of dicks. Like just one foul swoop, like a a long swoop and then two short swoops for balls and then the end of the penis is drawn is like colored quickly and colored pencil it's, with like orange. it's the same doodle that's on the inside of your book that we that's were that's right yeah that's right um okay so keith and his friends are going out to the clubs all of the time it was a combination of legit nights out quote Hard go-go dancing, really fast and really sweaty. <laughs> Those are Keith wor Keith's words, not mine. This is the difference between him and his friends and us when we're like, we go really hard at swingers and eat a lot of fries with we ranch. Eat so much tapatio. <laughs> we just go hard on tapatio. <laughs> um, also, artists were showing work in these spaces and performing poetry and music, etc., so it was kind of this perfect mix where he could kind of get himself out there mm -hmm. and fulfill this thing that he loved to do, which was like make work and show it, put it up somewhere. 
So here's Kwong Sing Sing Kwong Chi. I hope that's correct. And Keith reading poetry at another club that he often went to, and so did Andy, and so did everybody. Okay. Club Club Fifty Seven. They just do so many things. They're like, I'm interested in reading and writing poetry and doing these drawings and doing murals. Also, I didn't even tell you about so much of the stuff. He made tons of videos. Like he was really in, this is another thing that I connect with him on is like. Because you love video. This performative aspect of his work. Huh? (laughs) Is it because you love video art? (laughs) I love video. (laughs) No, like I think he the video was coming from this wanting it to be performative aspect. And I think then later he stopped making video work, but like painting murals in public was performative. And Mm so um, that kind of got to that same thing. So around this time he had a meeting with the fine arts (laughs) chair at his school. And she suggested that maybe there was nothing more they could do for him. What? Yeah. Yeah. They just like, said, maybe you just don't come to school anymore because you're already famous <laughs> or whatever. Really? And he was like, you're right. And he, so he stopped going to school. So he never graduated because he was out there making connections and doing all these little shows and stuff. So he just decided to keep doing that. I cannot believe the fine arts chair was like, we're good here. <laughs> you don't need now to Now they're like, anymore. you should just keep coming back and giving us your money. Forever and ever. Yeah. yeah. She was like totally honest and like, I just don't think we can help you. Like, wow. go do what you're doing. Okay. So drawing again. So all this time he was doing all this word art and collage and videos and blah, blah, blah. Um, so around 1980, he started drawing again. This is the beginning of his language that he was discovering through the cut-up technique and burrows. He was drawing flying saucers and animals that were kind of generic looking like, is it a cow or a dog? Mm -hmm. And dicks, obviously. Things like lines coming off of stuff. So this all became characters in his vocabulary that he made up. Mm -hmm. Um, And putting these visual, quote-unquote, words in different orders and rearranging them just like the letters and words from his cutout pieces. So that's kind of how he started creating stories. And that was something he did in videos too. He would like take a video of himself telling a story and then he would like retell the story in a different order. Then he would juxtapose both the videos and then he would like retell. Like it was all about like coming up with stories based on like basically the cut up technique, like cutting things up and rearranging them. So if you really think about it, this language he came up with is really derivative of that whole technique and Mm -hmm. like words and stuff. So here's like some of the earliest versions of these drawings, which look way different. It's so interesting that they're way more like squiggly than what he Well, he got good at it. Like over time, he was like, like could whip it out like super confident. But at first, and he even says, maybe I have it down here. Yeah, they're rough, which even Keith said himself, he hadn't drawn anything figurative since drawing cartoons as a kid. Hmm. So as time goes on, he becomes more and more proficient and streamlined at drawing these symbols. And he was figuring it out. So Yeah, like the untitled 1980, the bottom one, yeah. looks, I mean, not like in an offensive way, but it just looks like a kid drew it. It does, absolutely. And it doesn't, like it has the beginnings of what it was going to be. But yeah, so this image is basically like a piece of newsprint or something like brownish or creamish. And there's five images or five like symbols. Um, the top one. I don't know what this would be called. 
this left one. It's like a vase or. It yeah. almost looks like a nuclear power plant shape. Yeah, it does. That's that's funny. Like a whatever. Anyways, that weird shape. Then there's a pyramid. Then there's a like a radio looking thing. Yeah. Then just a very generic person, like no features at all, just a head and two legs and two arms. And then a some sort of animal that probably ends up being his dog. It's like mm-hmm. a, t- a little short tail and these two pointy ears and like, and they're all have like radiating lines coming out from them in black. And then, and then he must have spray painted red yeah. radiating lines on top of that. And it has a border, which is a kind of his thing too, like mm-hmm. this big black border around the edge. Find out why he always includes a border. Yeah, I didn't put it in. I forget, though. It was something about, like, it just gave his brain, if I really think about it, it reminds me of cartoons, right? Like, Oh, yeah. Yeah. Your grandpa had, like, a strip, right? And there's just, like, three squares. And so it had to to be within that panel. Yeah. To me, I think it comes from just his childhood and, like, that's how he drew. Yeah, that makes sense. So then he gets himself a marker and he takes it to the streets, like one of those big fat streets. Mar- like graffiti yeah. markers yep and people started noticing like they noticed samo which brings us to the subway drawings this is what i feel was a turning point so there's this ad that keith sees and it's for chardon jeans and it's like a I think it's like a like a man's ass from behind in a pair of jeans. And then there's this like girl like near the side of him with this like sultry look on her face. And it says Chardon jeans and Keith passed it and like someone had blacked out the C mm-hmm. in it. And so it said hard on jeans and it was like funny. Mm-hmm. So he admits that this was kind of like the first time that he started thinking about messing with advertisements or like some sort of like altering of advertisements and it kind of got him like paying attention to all the ads in the subways then he was riding the subway and he saw a bunch of these johnny walker ads and a lot of them featured the snowy scene it was like perfect basically blank canvas for a row of babies being zapped by a flying saucer (laughs) in keith's mind he's like oh perfect so he he drew that there but then one day there was just a blank space and it was like waiting for a new ad. And while it was being while it was waiting for a new ad, it was covered up with this paper and it was like super matte black. And Herring said that if it was if it was like shiny paper, none of those set up subway drawings would have ever happened. But because it was matte, it was just the perfect surface for drawing. And it just huh. like begged for something in his mind. Yeah. And so he literally just like went above ground found a place to buy some chalk, white chalk, and then came back down and started a drawing on that paper. It's interesting that he saw that texture as like an invitation to be like, yes, this needs to happen right here. Yeah, exactly. It was like something just clicked in his mind. And he was like, I must draw on this and I must draw on this with chalk. And so, um, so then he just started carrying chalk everywhere because he started seeing more of these. Like once you notice something, then it's like you notice it everywhere. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, I never noticed that this is how they did the subway ads. But he never wanted to put up his own paper and do it. No, it was just no. Like, it was just I like. I came across it. 
Yeah, exactly. And the whole thing, I think part of the idea behind it was like, there was nothing wrong with it. Like someone was not going to, you weren't going to get in trouble. Really. Nothing's I'm, there. You're not putting something up. You're not defacing an ad yeah. that someone yeah, paid for or whatever. He just felt like it was kind of harmless mm-hmm. and perfect. So he started carrying chalk and every time he'd see a blank paper, he'd get off the subway, make a drawing and then continue <laughs> back on his way wherever he was going. And so he did this all the time. And it's such a great moment being, moment (laughs) it's a moment it's a great moment because you're not defacing something that exists it's literally this interim period of something's going to be here it's not here yet and it's just nothingness and he's like in the meantime rather than Mm -hmm. looking at nothing look at this why and it just seems like so exactly it's not like it's like fun something about it has such a naive fun quality about it situation a little bit more beautiful yeah exactly and since it was so fragile and temporary like that was his thing like he was less worried about being seen like usually if you're gonna tag something or do any sort of like art that's illegal you do it at nighttime or whatever it's chalk you could literally like wash it down which makes it and that's what he said like multiple times if someone was upset with him he would be like, look, it's chalk. And then he would just like wipe yeah. it. And they and there was like not much that they could yeah. say. This photo of him doing it and that lady like side-eyeing. <laughs> I know. So this Kwong's photo, this is Kwong's okay. photo. Kwong's photos of him doing this are almost better than just the piece themselves. Sometimes he was like commenting on the ad or like t- taking from the mm-hmm. ad in the drawings. And sometimes he wasn't. But but just also like people watching him and this performative thing was also part of it. And just the time period, like in this photo, you can see the clothes people are wearing mm-hmm. and people are just on their way to work. And so this photo for everybody is an ad for it looks like some sort of movie called The Keep. Is that right? Yeah. They were all drawn to The Keep, like a horror movie or the something. The soldiers who brought death, their father yeah. and daughter fighting for life, the people who have always feared it. And the one man who knows its secret. Clearly not a movie that stood the test of time. So <laughs> they're like, what is this movie? Um, so there's that. And then right next to it is the blank paper. Mm. And Keith's drawing. He's like bent down drawing the bottom part of it. And this woman is like at the payphone. And if you're a Gen Z and you don't know what a payphone is, it's, it's a phone. Stop that listening to this podcast then. <laughs> yeah, get away from us. You put a quarter she's in. she's not ne- right? just next to it. She's like leaned up against it on the phone with someone. She's just talking on the phone, but like he happens to be right there drawing something. Like she's like totally interested yeah. and kind of like, what are you up to yeah. over here? Because that he could do it in the daytime, it becomes this performance. People start recognizing him and recognizing the drawings and then recognizing him when they see him making them. And he was increasingly interested in the things that people would say when they were coming across him. And so he's making these things and in part to communicate and get a reaction. And now he was actually getting the reaction. And he says, when I did it, there were inevitably people watching all kinds of people. After the first month or two, I started making buttons because I was so interested in what was happening with the people I would meet. I wanted to have something to make some other bonding between them and the work. People were walking around with these little badges with the crawling baby with glowing rays around it. The button started to become a thing now, too, and people 
with them would talk to each other. There was a connection between people on the subway. The subway pictures became a media thing, and the images started going out to the rest of the world via magazines and television. I became associated with New York and the hip-hop scene, which was all about graffiti and rap music and breakdancing. Mm-hmm. It had existed for five years or more, but it really hadn't started to cross over into the general population. It was incredibly interesting to me that it was reaching all kinds of people on different levels from different backgrounds. What was the what was that original Style Wars, right? That was the original like graffiti documentary. Oh, yeah. From uh-huh. 83. Yeah. Um, but I love that idea. I love that someone gets a little token for this witnessing this moment and this interaction and then it becomes like this little club of them where they're like you too and then yeah he said like tons of homeless people that like slept in the subway they had buttons on and they would like talk to each other it's really this nice moment of like extending a hand whether it's like him to these people where it's not like like forced conversation or something like maybe they just want to observe but like it's this nice moment where he can talk to them and give them something and maybe change their attitude about what they're witnessing. And then the domino effect of people recognizing each other and like, oh, we both experienced this. And that's, I have a cute story at the very end of this that I will tell about that, that exact thing. Yes. He, he wanted to connect those people and like connect with them himself. Mm -hmm. So this next image is, oh, it's two images. So, yeah, we haven't even talked about what the work looks like. But so let, this one on the left, it's um, he created two panels, like how he outlines like a comic strip, one on top of the other instead of left to right. And the top one is a cross, like a religious cross. And in the center of the cross, instead of Jesus, it's a television. And on the screen of the television is the radiant baby. And the television is radiating also, like glowing. And then at the bottom, these there's like three people with their arms in the air, like worshiping Praise. or being like, yay, or praising it. Yeah. And then in the bottom box is a, a cross, but it has legs on it. Like the cross is alive and it's running. And there's like swoosh lines, like it's running. And then presumably a per- Jesus is on the cross or like a person is on the cross. Then the second one, it says in the top, it says still alive in 85. And then... Underneath is like a person with the number 85 on their chest, but instead of a whole head, it's like a bowl head. It's like a half a head, basically. And coming out of the head. But no facial features. It literally looks like a big bowl is on someone's shoulders. It's just a bowl. Yeah. Uh, But none of his things have facial features. Yeah, that's true. Also, we didn't. But it doesn't really look like. Like there's no, no it looks neck. like ramen. Yeah, it looks like <laughs> it looks a ramen like a bowl, bowl ramen. is sitting on someone's shoulders. Yeah, yeah. And then coming out of it is like people or angels. So those are his angels when he does it, like his person with wings coming out. It kind of looks like a bat, but mm-hmm. it's angels. And they have X's on them on their chest. And then there's also like just little curly cues of people coming out or like a hand. And then one of the people has like a television with a dollar sign on it. And then there's like a baby and a person with a dog head. Okay. So the drawings are simple enough to be seen from, to be seen and understood from a moving subway. Not only are the drawings interesting, but when seen against the surrounding ads and the people commuting, they take on this historical context. Many of the symbols are born out of context of the time. For instance, the image 
of a figure with a hole through its stomach. Keith came up with that after um, hearing that John Lennon had been shot. Um, so the hole evolved to symbolize an emptiness within. And that's kind of, yeah, what it moved on to be. Okay. But that's how it started. Um, and the images can have a subversive quality. Jeffrey Deitch writes that the drawings, quote, masquerading as cartoons had thousands of subway riders a day studying sketches for Armageddon, drawings bubbling with unrestrained eroticism and spinning with signs of destruction. Well, I mean, going back to one of his influences, which I know closely, which is my grandpa, cartoons are a really non-threatening avenue to talk about greater ideas. You know, when you have cartoons, even in Peanuts, my grandpa was able to talk about things like feminism and politics and philosophy and psychology and all of these things. But when they're coming out of kids' mouths, people digest it and accept it really easily and they're, they don't feel threatened by it. Clearly, it's something that Keith was also able to talk about these things in a way where people accept it. I think maybe there's also an aspect of him giving people time. Like, I think sometimes people just need time. They need little bits of things that are hard to digest for them because of their own prejudices or whatever, something that they're not used to. And it kind of presents it in this soft way. Just going back to the use of cartoony imagery, it is this medium that is for everyone, which was, I mean, his original intention, like art is for everybody. He wants it to be right. in front of everybody's eyes and using a medium that already exists like that. Um, so William Burroughs said, by association, Keith is part of the whole New York subway system. Just as no one can look at a sunflower without thinking of Van Gogh, so can no one be in the New York subway system without thinking of Keith Haring. And that's the truth. <laughs> so one time, I'll tell this quickly, but one time he did get arrested for this. What? Um, there were two cops. Why? Yeah. It's so stupid. There were two cops and one cop just got really pissed off and basically like just couldn't get off. Of, he like decided to do it and then he had to stick to it. But so he caught him. But then they got a, they had to like get their car or something. Mm -hmm. So there were these public bathrooms and they were always locked so that people couldn't like live in them or have sex in them or whatever. So they locked, they handcuffed him and they locked him in this bathroom. And while he was in there, which wasn't long, it was like 15 minutes or something. But while he was in there, he was thinking like, they could totally get like a robbery call or something and totally forget about me and I could just die in here. <laughs> he was oh so gosh. worried. Yeah, he's like, I'm going to die in here. They that do. would be you if you got arrested for something. <laughs> totally. I'd be like, this is bullshit, man. I'm going to die. Um, but they did come back for him. And then when they got to the station, everyone knew about his drawings and they were like, oh my God, it's the guy. And like they were talking about him. And then the cop basically got shamed into like, like kind of letting him go basically but he did have to go like pay a fine or something is it still just his chalk drawings yeah he just wow like technically it's probably still illegal yeah, so yeah. he just decided to be a dick <sighs> so and his partner like apologized okay houston street mural in 82 keith would walk by this concrete wall on the way to his studio every day it was like a hand, like used to be a handball court. 
But the whole area was filled with trash and rats and like it was pretty gross. Like Mm -hmm. it was all graffiti. So he decided that if he cleaned it up, no one would ask if he had permission to paint it. So Keith and his boyfriend at the time, Juan, filled 40 trash bags and then they painted the wall white. And then they painted it with this fluorescent day glow paint like pink, green and yellow. And then he added his black line work on top. Um, So the images of these two third eye faces that he has, which actually came from like him drawing Mickey Mouse's eyes. Um, But he drew it like too far to one side. And so then he ended up, he was like, oh, I'll just put three, (laughs) you know, like otherwise they'd be too far apart or whatever. Um, So that kind of became one of his things. And then more figures underneath and this nuclear symbols that he had started painting because he was really against like the nuclear whatever war stuff that was going on and um he said that because of the fluorescent paint that when the sun hit it it like glowed (laughs) wow and it was an incredible monolith so here's a picture of him painting it shirtless because he's so cute all the trash bags yeah that's crazy also like the figures on the mural are like human size yeah yeah the ones above him are obviously bigger but like The ones he's working on. Yeah, they're like his size. But because everyone is jealous of him, (laughs) there was some resentment among other artists who felt that, this is his quote, who felt that I had sold out now and had gone on to be commercial, which of course was bullshit. But in their eyes, the wall began to get defaced, never by a graffiti artist. It was attacked by so-called artists from the East Village that would throw paint or use it as a symbol of their disdain for my success. I was personally hurt by it. I realized, of course, that when you put something in public, that it is a gift. And if you leave it, it is vulnerable to whatever's going to happen to it. You can't hold on to it or have sentimental attachment. That's crazy. Yeah. And it happened a few times and he fixed it up, but then it was like happening regularly. And this was the last straw. He had done this interview for the Village Voice. And they'd asked about the price of his paintings. Like, what are you selling your paintings mm-hmm. now for? Which I feel like is a super rude question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> rude. Um, and Keith, I think, was just kind of being funny. I mean, whether it was the truth or not, I think it was his way of deflecting. But he was like, mm-hmm. well, I still haven't sold anything over 10000 And so someone had painted like a huge $9,999 across the whole painting. Wow. And so he was pissed and he finally just destroyed it by painting it silver as a fuck you, which like it's like a shiny silver. Like, yeah, he was like, no, really? Fuck you. That's Um, so ridiculous that someone would be that petty. I know. To one care, especially because it's just a huge mural in I don't know where it was, this park or something. The East Village, just like on the street. Yeah. If it's these Pete, these East Village artists. They're probably not doing that kind of work anyway. So what does it matter? Yeah. Well, and he was doing like at the time, I didn't really cover it because there's just so much going on. But he was like, you know, doing little gallery shows here and there and like hanging out with the cool people. And like he was always putting his art up at all the clubs. And so he was like starting to get things by this point. But still. But like like, focus on your own work. Exactly. If you're jealous, work harder. Yeah. But this is what he always got. It's like the people tearing up his paintings at art school. Like people just hated him because he was doing well. And this is that like old school notion of trying to push other people down Mm -hmm. in order to climb your way higher versus like 
we're all in this together. Like, yeah. And like, let's we, help each other. And like we talked about today, like art is so niche. Like mm-hmm. someone succeeding has nothing to do with you because yeah. you have your own audience and you have your own style and you have your own thing. And there's room it's, for everybody. Everyone yeah. is going to some, there's going to be a group of people that loves your work and doesn't like Keith's work or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's that Rupi has this great quote. It's from a larger piece, but I love it where it says, Something like their successes are not my failures or your successes are not my failures. And I don't know why people take other people's success so personally. And like when someone's doing good, they take it as like, I'm not getting that thing. Like everyone's out to get them or push them down or it's such an aggressive way to exist. Yeah, exactly. Bro, Be like you're nine, awesome. Nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine, bro. You probably didn't do shit with your life yep. because no right? one likes you. <laughs> Just say, Keith, good job for cleaning up forty bags of trash and making Painting something a great mural that glows in the dark. Basically. <laughs> 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 All right, I'm skipping so much, and we still have so much to go. So I'm skipping a lot, <laughs> yeah. but I want to give you the full picture. So it's not like he's just painting a random mural and then like yeah. putting on shows on clubs anymore. Okay. So by 82, he's making tons of work for shows. He filled this whole gallery. So Tony Shafrazi. Wait, can you situate us in time? Like what, at what year did the art school tell him to leave? And then how long was he doing subways and murals? So the subway. Okay. So 82 is, he did this last mural in 82, but the subway stuff he continued for like five years. So while he's doing this other stuff, he's still drawing in the subways. Yeah, but how long has he been technically like out of art school, uh, just doing his I'm own gonna, stuff? I'm gonna look back, but I think it's two years. So around 1980 is when people, his lady was like, "We can't help you anymore." Okay. Um. Yeah. So it's been two years since okay. the art school could not help him anymore. So Tony Shafrazi is like his main gallery and it kind of and it stays his main gallery for a long time. So he filled this gallery floor to ceiling with these large tarp paintings like instead of because canvas was expensive. He drew on tarps and then drawings on paper. And you can see in this picture it was like a huge hit. Tons of people showed up. It's literally filled from floor to ceiling and the ceilings mm-hmm. are tall. They're like 20 foot ceilings. He also starts painting like vases and other sculptural objects. And he created these animated drawings that played on the Spectacolor billboard in Times Square. Oh, cool. Big things were happening for him. Mm-hmm. It was just starting. And he mentions the influence of rap and breakdancing in the 80s and how the graffiti scene was a visual representation of that culture, which is true, I feel. And so he was really immersed in uh, in that. And he starts drawing a lot of like robots and mechanics and DJing with like that famous image of um, the dog that's DJing and it says mm-hmm. DJ on this on the side. Um, it, so and this is all inspired by the choppiness of breakdancing. And, <laughs> and huh. then he says the electric boogie, which <laughs> I was like, what's the electric boogie again? It's real quick. Dance moves like that and clothes like everything from the 80s just stems from like cocaine use. <laughs> I think it's you're 100% like, correct. Just like, this is a great idea. Guys, let's do this with our bodies. 
Don't my shoulders look so cool way up here? Should I just roll on my belly? That'll be cool. Should we do that? Let's do it, guys. Everybody just snort a little cocaine and we'll do it together. Um, um, so he's friends with Andy and Madonna. And Andy was Madonna. one. Madonna? Yeah, he's like besties with Madonna. Um, Andy was one of his idols. But he just happened to come across him several times. Like he saw him having coffee by himself at a little table outside of MoMA, but he was too afraid to talk to him. Mm-hmm. But then he would see him at openies, openings and Keith was again too nervous to say something. But Andy Aww. initiated the friendship. He like came up to That's him so cute. and handed him something and then like they started talking and they would become each other's confidants. They would like talk on the phone all the time. Andy loved to hear gossip and like who was fucking who and who was like having a, you know, he loved all Mm -hmm. that stuff. And so he loved coming to Keith's parties because Keith was younger and like had all these cool people. And so Andy was like, I'm there, I'm coming. Um, And so Andy got introduced into this whole break, break dancing hip hop scene that he wouldn't normally because he was in a different generation. Mm hmm. So while that's all happening, Keith does more murals and he has this large piece at the Whitney Biennial and he does a large scale installation in the window of Robert Frazier, which is kind of performative, like people are watching him in the window. He creates posters for the Montreux, Montreux, I'm really bad at Montreux? French. Montreux? Montreux Jazz Festival and, oh, it's not French. Is it French? Oh, whatever. In Switzerland. In Switzerland, et cetera, et cetera. It just never stops. He's like working constantly. Okay. Okay. Now we're in 1984. He does a show in London with the Tony Schifrezi Gallery. Mm-hmm. And this is when he paints Bill T. Jones, the choreographer and dancer. Uh, and this is pretty fam- famous imagery. Uh, the large scale photos taken by Kwong Chi are shown alongside a bunch of his other work. But basically, um, he paints his whole entire body. Well, and he's a black man. And so he uses white paint to paint his whole entire body, including his penis. You can see on his yeah. penis. It's it's interesting. I don't know how well this would go over now because yeah, I think about that. <laughs> a lot of just his line work and patterns look like tribal mm-hmm. patterns and symbols, and especially because it's on this black man and it's Keith doing it. Like I just Absolutely. feel like this would not exist today. And people openly said, like, it's primitive. Your art's very primitive mm-hmm. or whatever. And Keith did. He's like, thanks. You know, <laughs> Keith did not like that word. Okay. And like, but I think it was the 80s and they didn't, like, no one was woke enough to understand all those things. Yeah. And like, Bill T. Jones was obviously very into this and like wanted this to happen. I mean, not that that matters, but like, mm-hmm. it. Yeah, it definitely so problems arise later just briefly because of this whole idea. So we'll talk about that. So he makes the switch to painting on canvas instead of vinyl because he can now well, A, he can now afford it, and B the fumes, the fumes from the markers on the from the type of paint on the vinyl was becoming a huge problem for him. Mm-hmm. Um so he makes tons and tons and tons of these square paintings on canvas, uh, but I'll focus on just one so you can get an idea. This is called, un- everything is called Untitled. Untitled 1984. It's indicative of the intricate work he was making at this time. And it tells a story with all these visual vocabulary and gives a good example of their meaning. So I thought we could talk about it. Okay. 
<laughs> do you want to even begin to explain this <laughs> this painting? <laughs> this is so hard. It's it so almost looks like a Where's Waldo. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's exactly. That's a very good description. There's so much going on mm-hmm. all over. I don't even know. Okay. I mean, you can yeah. start or no. not. Okay. Okay. You can. You can go. So let's just talk about one main thing. For okay. Here's the thing. The Albertina in Vienna did this large exhibition of Herring's work in celebration of what would have been his 60th birthday. And in doing so, they researched and like collected information to make an alphabet of his visuals, basically. And many are self-explanatory, but Albertina gives us a really good extra, a lot of good extra info based on what Keith was specifically interested in. So biggest aspect of this painting well first it's a yellow canvas with black lines and that's the whole thing yeah i was just gonna like quickly so it's a square canvas the very edge of it is red and then there's the whole like the majority of the square is yellow and like right after the yellow starts is his black square that line just outline one line outline and then everything within that black square is all of his illustrations Where's Waldo style? Just everything. Mm-hmm. Like a line so. drawing that just fills the entire space. So this first large thing that you see is like a pyramid with stairs going up on either end. And just like the other one that we talked about, it becomes like arms and a head. Um, but the head is a computer. The arms are both holding something. Uh, one of them is a brain. The other thing is like a there's a UFO like zapping it. And at the very bottom of this pyramid, there's like a bunch of people and they're like with their arms up. So that's just like the main part of the painting. Keith was really interested in Egyptian culture and he a lot of his like people with dog heads kind of reference that um, and specifically represents ancient times and quote the inconceivable cultural achievements of humankind. And so he kind of uses it to be critical of slave labor because like like obviously the pyramids had to be built with slave labor. There's no other way that they could be built. And so therefore it's kind of like this idea of social injustice and inhumanity. So the computer head represents Herring's fear of new technology in the space age. He said, eventually the only worth of man will be to service and serve the computer. Are we there? In a lot of ways we are. And I'm so glad Keith's not here today (laughs) to see how right he was. Mm -hmm. Um, So the computer head is holding up a brain, which represents human thought in one hand. So basically it's been replaced by this computer. And then in the other hand, the UFO zaps, zaps that hand. So the UFO represents communication from the other, in most cases, the other from like mainstream social norms. So the zap from the UFO is trying to give the power of information to change the path of this computer brain pyramid guy. And Keith kind of sees himself as the outsider, like he's a homosexual and like doesn't believe, isn't like religious necessarily. And so he kind of views these UFOs as like him and his people that he hangs out with um, that have like a different perspective and can try and do what he's doing, communicate with the mainstream and be like, hey, did you think about this? (laughs) So quickly, there's the crowd at the bottom, which kind of represents seducibility of the masses. 
the cat there's caterpillars going up the sides of the pyramids which represents metamorphosis but also for keith it represents greed because this caterpillar form has to eat and a ton to become a butterfly and there's someone riding the caterpillar yeah like the crowd like the crazy people mm-hmm. they're all just like oh let's go so yeah you see in this basically it's like that's the main idea this computer head is taking over people's thoughts all the people are loving it you get all this angels of death and tons of ufos coming out of this thing trying to be like no you guys let's this is not the way we got to tell you there's something better and yeah, I it's just like a big I couldn't battle tell, <laughs> i couldn't tell if the ufos are coming out of the mouth or if they're getting sucked in to the mouth yeah i thought that too Anyway, that's kind of an insight to some of those like symbols. Um, okay. So he was also throwing a lot of parties because it's the 80s and we do cooking. <laughs> I don't know if he was doing cooking, but he was throwing a lot of parties. So he decided to start what he called a party of life, mainly because he had made a good amount of money and he felt super guilty about it. And he wanted to just share it with his friends somehow. They decided to make the invite be like a handkerchief type Hmm. thing. So they silk screened this on this handkerchief. And it's just like a bunch of people, I don't know, orging, partying, touching, doing stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And around the edge just says, Keith Haring invites you to the the second annual party of life at the Palladium, blah, 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 on the dates. So this first one, I don't know if they all were, but this first one was a totally non-alcoholic party because they couldn't get a liquor license. So instead of <laughs> still doing it, they were just like, it's fine. We don't need it. So I guess they weren't doing, well, maybe they, it was a fine time to have cocaine, but they wore. We don't need alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have cocaine. They wore fluorescent suits and Keith painted a bunch of clothing and the invites, like I said, were on handkerchiefs, and it was a huge success, and tons of famous people, including Diana Ross, Grace Jones, Calvin Klein, and a bunch of other 80s people I don't know showed up. Wow. Including his bestie Madonna, uh, who's seen here wearing a like a pink leather, yeah, like vinyl, vinyl, <laughs> shiny vinyl suit that is completely painted by him with his black black lines. This is what you need to do. Just have parties and like Invite send Madonna. out invites to people and just be like, come. I have so much social anxiety around parties. I just like assume no one will have fun. And so I don't do it. Um, so he's close with Madonna, but she hadn't become well known yet. So he mm-hmm. painted this jacket and she performed at his party like a virgin. But no one really cared because the song hadn't even reached the radio yet. <laughs> It would be six months before she was like really famous. Yeah. I was just looking up like when kind of the Immaculate Collection got super famous, but that crazy. Yeah, it was like early nineties. Okay, here's where we get into problems with native art forms. Okay. Um he was invited to paint murals in Australia by the government arts commission at a few museums, and one of one of them was the National Gallery of Victoria. And there's this huge glass wall that had water flowing down the front of it, like constantly. So they turned the water off and he painted on the back side of the glass. And it turned into this huge controversy because... I have a question. Did he research like Aboriginal imagery and history or anything? Or he just went down there and was doing his thing and like did not even think about it? Did not even think about it or know anything about it. Like Keith 
at this point he was so busy and it was just like, got a phone. I was going to say an email, got a phone call or whatever from the, mm-hmm. the government in Australia and was like, Hey, we like your work. Can you come paint a thing? And he was like, cool. Yeah. Like to him, it was just like, come paint your work. Okay. So he didn't do anything differently. He just painted his work the way he always would. I feel like, I mean, blame all around, but like, they shouldn't have asked him. They should have known way better because they're the government and they know yeah. their own history. But okay. So, but maybe they thought like he'll paint a- UFOs and snakes and maybe, right? but like he did his normal stuff. Like, I mean, I, there might have been a UFO on there, but that like dolphins were a very normal thing he painted. You can see the mushroom cloud here. Yeah. It's people with like, you know, it's just like his normal, <laughs> it's his normal okay. work pretty much. Okay. The only thing that I see here that I hadn't seen before is these targets, mm-hmm. the things that look like targets. So people saw it as Aboriginal work. And Keith didn't know very much about our Aboriginal art. But for Australia being like a relatively new country, there wasn't a distinct historical culture besides Aboriginal, like the original Aboriginal people. That was mm-hmm. their culture. So for the government to bring an American artist to come paint what looks like Aboriginal art was a complete insult, like he had ripped them off. Yeah. And as you saw as him painting that guy, like it just looks that way, you know, yep. and put it in a different context and suddenly yeah. it's a problem. Yep. So there's this part of the piece. Well, I think like it is a problem <laughs> no matter what. That his work looks Aboriginal, even though he did not intend for it to. It's just like. I think if you're trying, if you're studying semiotics and trying to break down communication to symbols, that's what probably any native people did. But that doesn't mean you can't create a language. That's what he did. But then, like in certain contexts, you know. Yeah, but I mean, if it's been brought to his attention, per- I, personally, I think them just describing it as primitive was not like the way you would hear someone describe it as primitive today. You know, like you don't take it the same way. You just take it as like, it's simple. It's like cave paintings or whatever. Like it's the simplest form of communication. Primitive is like simple. No, I think there's a different connotation. I think because the symbology that he's using, where like if it's just simple, you could say it's minimalist or it's line drawings or cartoons or whatever. Like there's so much more going on. Right that does have this visual vocabulary like whether it's the lines being a reference to rivers or you know like it it, it's a language that already exists but it's like humanities though if it was just one like some squiggles but like nothing else was there like they wouldn't get no one would get mad about that but because there's like the squiggles with the target, with the cross, with the this. Like, there's so many things that are being referenced. Then they're like, okay, buddy. Like, yeah, I do think it's all those things put together. But those are all things he uses normally. Like, he, the cross is obviously something he uses all the time. He uses an X all the time. Like, all the things are just like a different, like, it's just the same as all the other things. Let's just move on. Okay. <laughs> this is like, we're both just going <laughs> to stand our ground. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, basically what happened was this target, a month after he left, someone like used a gun and shot the glass out and then it was Hmm. destroyed and that was that. (laughs) So it had to be removed. Okay, 1985, 
I wanted to show you, well, there is some more whimsical things, but this is kind of one of the more whimsical projects before things get a little heavy. Um, But Keith was able to get a show at Leo Castelli Gallery where Frank Stella, Jasper Johns, Roy Lichtenstein, James Rosenquist all had shows. And Castelli was also willing to pitch in to help Keith produce the body of work. And he was interested in making these large outdoor sculptures that were like made to be climbed on. And cool. Yeah. And that's kind of what we saw today. Mm-hmm. So he created these models out of aluminum uh, and then fabricated them at the Lippincott, like whatever, at Lippincott Center or something in Connecticut. So here's this picture of, I guess they use this for the like, to advertise the show, but it's a picture of him just like standing next to one of the figures that has the dog head or the animal head. And, um, it's like one, two, three, like two and a half sizes bigger than him. But it's like a wood figure. That's all cut out. It's metal, but yeah. Metal. Okay. But yeah, like it's not like a painted on the wall. Yeah. And it's flat, like, you know, obviously it's three dimensional, but it's like not rounded. It's just like mm-hmm. a flat piece of metal. Yeah. And then here is kind of how they've been displayed. And you can see how like the kids playing on them. There's like a mm-hmm. one of his figures that has a hole in the center and the kids are like on top of it. And this would not go over in a park these absolutely days. Absolutely not. It's so many ways like, for you would kids die. to hurt themselves. <laughs> Although, have you been to a park recently? There's tons of things. And I'm like, why is that even here? No, I don't hang out at parks and watch kids <laughs> yet. Okay, well, you will. It's creepy now, but later it won't be. Um, so originally they were shown in the center of the gallery space. And then Keith painted the surrounding walls with cartoon characters He said, it was like a holy space. It was the perfect time to do something totally irreverent. (laughs) Maybe that's where I got that word. (laughs) And to paint the cartoon characters. This was the first time I ever introduced these cartoon characters into a serious art context. It made the whole atmosphere sort of like a wild playground. So I don't have pictures of this because I couldn't find it online. But in the book, they're different. They're like half faces and they're very much like yeah, cartoony. They look different than his regular like symbols. It's really interesting when you consider how seriously he thought about all the things he did. And like, I mean, in the way that like his work was his life and he was just like always making things. He just seems like a forward motion type of guy. Like get arrested, keep making shit. Yeah. Here's talk shit. Keep going. Paint over your mural. Just keep going. Shoot, (laughs) shoot through your piece. Just go. Just keep going. (laughs) Until AIDS hits. And he says, by 1985, I knew several people who had died. The scene in New York had changed. So Keith notes that he'd heard rumors and whispers about the gay cancer in 82. And the first person he knew that died of AIDS was Klaus Nomi, a new wave Vietnamese opera singer who had been around Club 57 a lot. And people started to realize that it was transmitted sexually, so they stopped going to the baths, which was a huge Mm -hmm. part of life for gay men in New York. And then the baths closed completely, and Keith started to be way more careful about who he's having sex with and trying to have safer Mm -hmm. sex or what 
he understood was safe sex at that point. Like what I totally forget about is how much of an enigma this disease was. Like no one really understood it at the time. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was extra, extra scary. So much of his art starts to communicate the horror of AIDS. Imitations of Keith's work started popping up around 82 to 83. So like right when he started the subway drawings. Which is, I mean, I was talking to George about this today at SF MoMA, how frustrating it is when people copy something almost exactly like, yeah. you mentioned it right on this, the uh, Ruth Asawa copycat. Yeah. I, like, I just don't understand how they can be so, I don't know if these copycats were, but how for some of them, they can be so embraced by the art world when it's clearly like a direct ripoff of yeah. the original work. Yeah. I mean, I think that blows my mind and it makes me angry and I don't understand that. But I think this was a little bit different in the way that I think it was just regular people being just copying it because they're seeing it everywhere. You know, I think it's less in this like art world canon and more well i think it was half and half some was just like <clears throat> people copying his tag and copying his style like everyone learning the stussy <laughs> yeah yes which we all know and love yep. unless you are a gen Zer. so then we're just not talking to you <laughs> get um, out of here <laughs> we told you to leave a long time ago you threaten us with your pants and your low-waisted and your whatever you're doing with your life, <laughs> your slang. Um, but but part of it was also like, okay, so he f- also finds out that like as soon as like he's doing these drawings on the subway for five years, and at a some point, like you know, there's like news cameras have followed him around and done interviews, and like people have talked to him, and so at some point, the drawings start disappearing. Like he puts them up, and then like. An hour later, they're gone. Mm. So then he finds out people are selling them. So what he decides to do is is open the pop shop. So he says, at a certain point, the whole idea of the subway drawings and the work in public became about working against the elitist and exclusive nature of the art world, which was dictating culture and not allowing people to participate. At the point when the art world was interested in participating, it would have been very easy to hide in the safety of the art world and survive just by staying in the studio making artworks to be shown in galleries and museums. He says, the more exclusive it is, the more people want it, the more special it is, the more they feel like that they alone can understand it and that they're the ones that have the power to distribute it. That's the game you're supposed to play from the beginning I've been against this game and I haven't played it. I had a foot in the art world because I wasn't totally interested in being outside of it either. And I wanted to have an impact on it. I didn't want to abandon what I was seeing in the art world or what I had learned from art history because working within it was really important to me. But the work itself was demanding that I follow the next step and not run and hide in the safety of the art world, although it would have been advantageous financially and safer in terms of criticism. So even though he got a ton of criticism for opening the pop shop, yeah, he still did it because he believed in it, which, yeah, the criticism was like, oh, you're a fucking sellout. Now you're just selling shit <laughs> with your stuff on it. You know, you just can't but, win. Like can't. everyone's going to be mad no matter what you do. Exactly. So I think and that's kind of what he says, right? 
the but the work itself was demanding I follow the next step. So he just mm-hmm. followed his gut and was like, this is where I need to go with it. And that's yeah. what I'm going to do. So he opens a pop shop. Um, but Andy supported him in not giving a fuck about what anyone says, obviously, because that was Andy's vibe. Yeah. He told Keith that as long as he knew what he was doing and why he was doing it, that was the most important thing. So here's mm-hmm. a picture of him in the original pop shop. Obviously, he painted all the walls and the floors yeah. and the ceiling. So he started creating his like product, you know, like T-shirts and sweatshirts and stuff. Yes. Before Prince. anyone. Yeah. Like so he was it. like, people are doing it for, they're redoing my work and selling it. Why don't. Was I it be- happening on like apparel and things like that already? I don't know about apparel, but I know for sure prints yeah. were being made, but maybe apparel. I- I'm not sure about that. I know that he had made some shirts before, so maybe people re- were reselling them. Hmm. I don't know. But later he creates a pop-up shop in Japan, the pop shop. <laughs> In Japan, because a lot of there was a lot of like people making new versions of his work there and selling it mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Japan was like one of those places. And he tried to do the same thing. He opened the pop shop to try and control it and hoped that people wanted the original thing. And for whatever reason, like the culture was different than America or whatever, it didn't work. Like no one really cared that much about getting an original Keith Haring. They just like wanted the thing, whatever it yeah. was. Huh. 1986. Crack is whack. whack. This is probably like his most famous mural, I would say. You know this one, right? Or no? No. Oh, okay. I thought this was probably the most famous, but maybe not. Um, so it's 1986. The crack scene. Have you heard of it? (laughs) Have you heard of it? We've talked about cocaine. People took cocaine too far. It went to crack. (laughs) Exactly. That's actually what well. Actually, the government, let's yeah. not get into it. Yeah. You can look it up. But apparently it gives you an exhilarating high the second you hit it and then immediately shifts to anxiety. So you're always searching for that original high. Incredibly addictive. Did we know this? Yes, we all know this. Hopefully. Don't do crack. Don't crack do is crack. whack. So back in the day, they did not know this. <laughs> they were not aware. Mm-mm. It was chic. It was fun. Very cheap. Keith's studio assistant, Benny, started smoking it and found himself, you guessed it, completely addicted. Mm -hmm. And Keith was super upset because Benny was particularly brilliant and, quote, the best assistant that I had. He tried to stop. He tried to go see a counselor. Keith and like his friends took him from city agency to city agency, emergency room to emergency room, trying really hard to get him admitted somewhere. And so, like, while this was going on, it was always on his brain. And he Mm -hmm. had seen another perfectly visible wall that used to be a handball court. I guess people loved handball in the 80s. (laughs) Or maybe in the 70s, and then they abandoned it in the 80s. Um, Popped up on cocaine. We don't have time for handball. (laughs) Abandon it. Just just finish your handball, and let's go do coke in the baths. Um. And it was visible from like along the highway. So it was highly visible and it was abandoned. So inspired by Benny, he decided to paint it. So it's all orange, like this, you know, fluorescent orange paint. And he does his normal black outline like of the frame. And then he's got in big letters, it says crack is whack. And then like polka dotted inside. It's polka dotted. Yeah. Yeah. And it's in like a cloud and then 
it's coming out of a crack pipe. The cloud is the smoke coming mm-hmm. out of a crack pipe. And then there's like money going down in flames because obviously people send their money on it. And then there's like a guy getting his arm bit off by a monster. And then um, there's another monster. And this person is upside down hanging from a rope, like tied at the feet. And he has an X on him and he's like going to get eaten by this monster. And then there's a cross flying in there too as well. And then like some skulls and skulls with wings and stuff. And it says 86 NYC. And then the incredibly ripped <laughs> Keith Herring standing next to it with a thumbs up. Like, hey. Double thumbs up. Crack really is whack. Uh, so when they finished painting it without permission, obviously, the cops came by to arrest him. And the cops partner is another situation. Or maybe I mixed them up and this is when the cops partner came up and apologized. Mm. Um, so the cop's partner came up, apologized for his partner being a dick and said, I can't go against him because he's my senior and technically it is against the law. So they take him down and he's got like a court date. And but it makes all these news stories because Reagan was going on and on and on about the war on drugs. Yeah. And even though the government's bringing most of the shit into the country and the papers were flabbergasted when Keith said that he had a court appearance in a few days because he got arrested for this. So it makes his headlines and he ends up getting contracted by Parks and Rec, <laughs> but actually just by Parks, by the Park whatever department, saying that they could do anything for him in the future, if they could do anything for him in the future to let them know. Wow. They were really proud of the mural. That's so cool. I know. And then a week later, it was sprayed over, probably by crack users, to be a pro-crack mural. What? (laughs) Yeah. Listen. (laughs) It happens. It definitely happens. Oh, my God. So then Parks, without permission from higher up people, like didn't talk to the guy that talked to Keith, just painted over Mm -hmm. it because it was like, yay for crack or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know what it said, but it was like, we love crack. Um, They're like, whack means cool now, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They just are out there explaining. So we're just going to recontextualize the word whack. It means cool now, guys. (laughs) Crack is whack. We love it. (laughs) It's ill, ill, man. (laughs) Ill means cool too now. (laughs) Um, They're like, I'm so ill. Yeah, right? Ill's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) No, really. This crack is making me ill. Like, I think I might die, guys. Someone take me to the hospital. Um. Drugs aren't funny. No, don't. But then, so then the head guy asked Keith to repaint it. And after that, Parks touched it up anytime that it was graffiti because they had paid for it. I love Parks. I love Parks and Rec too. (laughs) Amy Poehler was just like, we love you. (laughs) Okay. City kids. So Keith worked with a lot of kids and did a lot of work in places that were meant to be for children, schools, children's hospitals, et cetera, daycares. Oh, his work would be so amazing in a children's hospital. Well, we'll get to that. (laughs) He did it all, Lindsay. There's nothing. Well, I don't know. If he lived, we would have seen. But So he was really comfortable with kids and respected them a lot. And he said their imagination is a, quote, combination of honesty and freedom they seem to have in expressing whatever it is that's on their mind and the fact that they have a really sophisticated sense of humor also children have incredible instincts which get them through the world they can sense the energy and karma that comes from another person 
Children immediately relate to my kind of drawing because it uses really simple lines. They can sense the honesty in the drawings. So Keith was actually the godfather to many of his friends' kids. And in interviews later in his life, he talks about how if it would have been possible that he would have wanted his own children. (laughs) And like I said earlier, it's kind of weird. People were weird about him being gay and being around children. Like somehow that makes him a pedophile. Um, But yeah, obviously he had this really strong connection to them. And he also said, there's nothing that makes me happier than making a child smile. The reason the baby has become my logo or signature is that it's the purest and most positive experience of human existence. Children are still free of all the complication, greed, and hatred that will slowly be instilled in them through life. Hmm. So City Kids was an alternative high school that approached Keith to create something with the kids to help get the word out about this new program. And he came up with the idea of making a 10-story banner to hang at the Javits Convention Center. Where is this? Is it in New York? Just in New New York, yeah. Um, so 4th of July, it's actually the center faces the Statue of Liberty. So it was 4th of July and they decided to do this image of the Statue of Liberty. So like when it was up, they were facing each Hmm. other. He drew the black outline of the Statue of Liberty and then the kids would paint and draw on the inside. So from far away, it looked like Keith's drawing was just filled with color, but it was made up of like smaller drawings by the kids. So 300 kids showed up per day for three days. And there were other events like music and theater and workshops to keep the kids entertained. (laughs) But the big focus was creating the mural. There was a huge unveiling, which Yoko Ono came to with Keith. Like they went together. (laughs) He just knows everybody. And he says, this was one of the best organizational feats that I've ever achieved in my life. (laughs) So if that tells you anything about how chaotic it was, coming from a person who throws parties all the damn time. Kids are worse than all of his friends on crack. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 300 of them? Yes, it is. Okay. Berlin Wall. Keith had this huge tour of Europe in 86, painting commissions and a toy store and doing a video with grace jones and you know just normal famous people shit i guess and a few weeks before he left a man called him from the berlin museum called the house at checkpoint charlie and it was a museum dedicated a cool name well, i don't understand it what is it house at checkpoint charlie yeah <laughs> best known berlin wall crossing point between east and west berlin So it was a museum dedicated to human rights issues and explaining the history of the Berlin Wall Mm. to people. And he asked Keith if he'd be interested in painting it. And Keith, in true Keith fashion, was like, sure, I have a few days in between a thousand other things I'm doing in Europe, but I could totally knock it out. That's not a real (laughs) quote. So he bought all the paint and got ready like in the middle of the night. And the wall was being painted yellow at keith's request to cover all the existing graffiti but it was just like a thin one layer like Mm -hmm. you could still kind of see everything behind it um but they warned keith that that had to be done right away because local artists would immediately jump at the chance of a freshly painted Mm -hmm. wall so he decided yellow black and red for his colors because those are the colors of the german flag which represented both east and west germany um and they were divided so he says I have the chance and responsibility to make a political statement. 
the fact that I'm painting on the wall itself is a political statement. So what I paint was important. I'm painting this continuous interlocking chain of human figures that are connected at the hands and the feet so that they really are the chain. So he starts early in the morning. It was cold, really cold and misty. And he paints all day with only one break for a press conference because he's key. <laughs> Maybe this is how he gets so buffy, just like yeah. doesn't eat and just works all day. And there was a huge amount of press and Kwong, quote, Kwong was completely mad at me because I hadn't woken him up in the morning. <laughs> so Kwong was like, the fuck, man? I was supposed to take pictures in the beginning. So if you haven't already realized it, it seems like Kwong basically follows Keith everywhere, documenting everything he did, which I'm super jealous of. But it was quite a scene because the guards, guards, we call mm-hmm. them guards, on the other side of the wall came to see what he was doing because there's this whole portion of the wall that was built by the East Germans. So they're allowed to cross on that side because they technically built mm. it. So they're like, we can come over on the, right there. But they could be arrested if they like stepped over a line. Oh, wow. So they would just come over just right in their little area and be like, "What the? what's going on here? Do you think those guards were jealous? I wish we were on our side. Berlin. <laughs> or they were mad. Those was one of the two <laughs> options, basically. They were probably like, is it snakes? <laughs> um, but per usual, it was already starting to get painted over by the next day. And over time, it got filled more and more, especially because local artists were eager to paint over the portion that Keith had painted because he's famous at this point. And years later, he was sent photos of it and got to see that there were still fragments of it that remained like in the background. Hmm. Were young artists annoyed that the wall was painted and he was invited and it was just for him because he's this like famous artist? Some were. Well, partially. Like, he's just an American. Like, why is he here? Sort of like the thing with Australia, Mm -hmm. like what right does he have? But also they felt like it was too cheery. Like the wall was doom and gloom, right? The wall was a symbol of something terrible. Mm -hmm. And I think because of that, Keith was trying to be like, maybe we can still be united and like blah, blah, blah. But they were like, no, it should be gray. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people just like started painting over it gray because they were like mad thinking like, this is not how it's supposed to be. It's a bad thing. Okay. 87. Unfortunately, Andy Warhol dies at 58, which I did not know that he died so early. Yeah. After having surgery on his gallbladder, he survives being shot Mm -hmm. (laughs) a bunch of times, but then he had surgery and like was doing okay, but then he later like had this post-operative irregular heartbeat and just died in his sleep. So Keith's in Brazil with his bestie Kenny and his wife and his child. And Kenny had this house in the middle of nowhere without phones and whatnot. But Keith, and he'd been there a while, so he went to town to call this gallery in New York about some business Mm -hmm. thing. And the first thing that they told him was that Andy had died the week earlier. And Keith was completely shook. Andy had talked to him on the phone almost every day. He'd spoken to him before he left about the projects that he was doing Mm -hmm. and things that they were going to do together. He says it was really a shock because he was in his prime. He was the person who made it possible for everything that I did to exist. His endorsements of what I was doing gave it credibility. Without him breaking down the conception of what is art or breaking down the barriers between high and low art, without his support, it wouldn't 
have had nearly the impact that it did on the rest of the world, especially in the art world. I not only lost my friend, but also my main source of support. (laughs) He later writes, Andy is, I'm going to cry. This is really sad. Andy is with me now. He lives, he lives inside many people. He has an outward image of a manipulator, a user of people. In fact, the opposite is true. People used him and he let himself be used. He wanted to make things better for everybody else. He helped a lot of people see themselves. He was not transparent, but maybe a mirror. Nobody can be responsible for other people's lives. Mm. And then I didn't even write this down because it was too much sadness. But then Basquiat overdoses Mm. like a little while later. So Keith is losing everybody basically in his life. And those were just not even to AIDS. Those are just other reasons. But he's also losing people to AIDS. Okay, so Europe. As I mentioned, Keith spent a lot of time in Europe that year. He works on a carousel for this traveling artist's amusement park called Luna Luna. He painted a huge mural on the side of Necker's Children's Hospital in basically three days because he had to be in Japan two days after that. And I wasn't even going to include this because it's so much. But then I was just looking up, is it still around? Mm -hmm. And then I got all this interesting information about it. So it still exists. The Keith Herring Foundation and... Jerome de, de Normont of Normont Art Production worked incredibly hard and went to great lengths to preserve it. So this is him painting mm-hmm. it, obviously. It's like these big primaries, like yeah. red, yellow, blue, and then green. Just abstract shapes. And then on top of it, he does his black line work of figures. Okay, so that's how it looked when he created it. And if you go down, that is how it looked in 2013. Whoa. It's like... First of all, the building itself is falling apart in portions, but then the black, it seems like the color is okay, but the black is like bubbling up from behind. Like it's like peeling off. It's just the really bad. And obviously the rest of it is like faded Mm -hmm. and stuff. It was badly damaged by weather and time and pollution because it's Paris. The building itself was an issue and falling apart and hospital was set for demolition to build a whole newly designed campus and basically they just decided to leave this as a freestanding totem basically and tear down the rest Um, of the building and tear down so you see in this picture it's connected by stairways like it's basically a stairway Mm -hmm. inside of there and then each floor connects with a little bridge to the building it's basically like those fire department practice stairs, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yes. They're like uh-huh. freestanding, which is like, and this is like a concrete yep. stairwell to nothing. Yeah, exactly. When they tore down the rest of the building. Yes. Um. So what they did is they had to like patch the walls and then they cleaned it by like sandblasting to make the colors pop again. Mm-hmm. And it was super time consuming. And then they even used needles to inject adhesive underneath the black paint and then used heat and pressure to repair it yeah they which like it's huge if you go all the way down you can see how big it is it's gigantic so they went to great lengths to fix this mural which i thought was crazy so i just wanted to to say that because i thought it was cool anyways yeah so he's really busy and he was out of the country for a long time like three months And he's meeting people and having the time of his life. 
And then he received a phone call from a reporter asking if it was true that he was in Europe because he has AIDS and is receiving treatments. And he says, quote, I knew that as soon as I got back to New York and people saw me again, it would dispel the rumors. (laughs) But it was around this time that Keith is living his life as if he does already have AIDS. He was speaking with his friend, painter George Kondo, and he asked Keith about life and art, which is more important. And he says, and George said that art is more important because it's immortal. This struck a very deep note inside of me. For as you know, I'm quite aware of the chance that I have or will have AIDS. The odds are very great, and in fact, the symptoms already exist. My friends are dropping like flies, and I know in my heart that it is only divine intervention that has kept me alive this long. He knows he has limited time and says that his goal is to, quote, do as much as possible as quickly as possible. He says, I'm sure that what will live on after I die is important enough to make sacrifices of my personal luxuries and leisure time now. Work is all I have and art is more important than life. Wow. So whether you agree with this or not, (laughs) in his journal entry, he describes the pain of having to watch his friends die a slow death. And he's talking about how he's way more afraid of having to make his loved ones watch him die that way than of actually dying. He talks about how he knew that he would die young, but he always thought it would be fast, like an accident. And he says, I live every day as if it were the last. I love life. I've been lucky so far. I don't take it for granted, I assure you. Sorry, I'm emotional. (laughs) I appreciate everything that has happened, especially the gift of life I was given that has created a silent bond between me and children. Children can sense this thing in me. They know. I've always been attracted to these special people. And then he's like referencing the people who know. Like he thinks his friends have this something special too mm-hmm. that that children also have. It's this quality that separates me from other artists. I'm different. Many artists have this understanding of the world that separates them from it. But only some of them are truly special in a way that they can touch other people's lives and pass through them. I'm sure when I die, I won't really die because I live in other people. So that's what he does. He lives life to the fullest. He paints a mural with city kids again. You can see in this cute Polaroid. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And then he paints the Carmine Street Pool, which is a local spot for Italian kids in the neighborhood, but also the Lower East Side kids that come over because it's like a cleaner, nicer pool. Yeah. Um, okay. So sadness again, diagnosed in 1988 when I was born and when Lindsay was born, we were both born. He had intended to go to Europe again in the summer, but was having trouble with his breathing. He checked his blood periodically and was because like he knew and was practicing safe sex, but almost all of his previous partners had the virus and were becoming sick and a lot of them had died already. So he knew like, Most of it, it seems like, was contracted when all these guys were going to the baths all the time and having sex with each other not safely. So I think a lot of it was like people knew they had it. Once their partner died off, they're just like, I probably have it. So one day he finds a purple spot on his leg and it wouldn't go away. And then he found another on his arm. And he went to the doctor and found out that it was Carposi's sarcoma. He'd gone 
to his other doctor for blood test again, and it showed that his T cells had dropped dramatically, which means he now fit the classifications for AIDS. He says, at first, you're completely wrecked. It's like, I knew it was going to happen, but somehow it doesn't prepare you anymore for that moment. When that's it, that's really it. I went over to the East River and sat and cried and cried and cried. But then it's like, you have to go on. You get yourself together and you realize it's not the end right there and that there are other things and you've got to continue and you've got to figure out how you're going to deal with it, confront it and face it. So here's a painting he did from around that time called Unfinished Painting. And it's like clearly supposed to be unfinished. It's like a mostly blank canvas. And then the top left corner is painted purple with the drips of the purple running down and then just like haphazardly painted. How do you describe that? It's just like painted as just a little corner and then but then went in to finish the details just on that corner. So it's like very intentional. I mean, it looks like as if the whole thing were painted and you like ripped a corner off of it. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, that that's exactly. is what exists. And then the canvas and behind like it. bleeding down. Yeah, and then the purples yeah. of the one quarter of it is running down below it. All right, I'm going to get through this. Yep. Herring Deep worked breaths. right up in. Yeah. This is you and Eva. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like so connected to them. Okay. Herring worked right up until two months before he died. Scharf was at his side when he was very ill. Herring was agitated, twitchy, with his eyes shut, and Scharf held him. I said, you can relax. Everything you've done is going to keep going. You're going to continue. And I felt him relax. I meant it. He started something really big, and I will always honor his legacy. Herring died on 16th of February, 1990. During his lifetime, he had almost 50 one-man shows, He painted 45 murals, and since his death, his foundation has supported hundreds of youth, community, art, LBGT, safe sex, and Planned Parenthood projects. His work is held by MoMA, the Whitney, the L.A. County Museum of Art, the Andy Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh, and many, many people own a Keith Haring badge. Okay, so lastly, I just wanted to talk a little bit about Keith's place in art history. Mm -hmm. So this is another quote of his. My art took a shortcut to popular culture instead of being passed down after having been cleared and verified and explained by high culture. He goes on to talk about how a Mondrian painting was outrageous when it was first created, but over time it was digested and then entered popular culture. Mm -hmm. Same as Picasso or Liechtenstein. People just hate anything that's different. (laughs) Like they're just, they really do. Resist. And it's like, okay, that's cool. Resist. But for Keith, Instead of that happening, Mm -hmm. popular culture was like, we love it right away. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the art world was like, hold on. That's not how things work around here. (laughs) First, he has to die. Then we have to decide it's good (laughs) over hundreds of years. Then you can like it. But that's not how it works. So for Keith, he says, the public appearance happened before the art world ever had the chance to stop and realize what was going on. It went to the audience first. Most critics were very vague and usually criticized the phenomena surrounding my work rather than really talking about the work itself. Mm. I still am sort of outside the art world, and I still wonder why. Because of a lack of understanding of what's going on, museums just pulled back and decided to wait to see what happened. They weren't going to stick their necks out to support anything. If I'd gotten bogged down by that, I would have never gotten any further. He still exists with a foot in both spaces where he's he's like in museums and 
talked about in art history, but he's also on skateboards and t-shirts and in urban outfitters. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, But then I think the high art world is a little like, yeah. uh, Keith Haring. So this is a, a conversation for Bomb. It's an article between Johanna, Johanna Burton, who is now, she's like a critic, but now she's an executive director of MoCA. Okay. And then a Canadian artist named Scott Trelevin. Mm-hmm. Sure. Discussing how different Keith's work became once it was framed by the commercial market as ahistorical. And it says, quote, you can offer Herring as a graduate of a mystic school, if you will, but we know that won't fly with the nature of the market because, like, mainstream, mm-hmm. because it's allergic to sincerity and poetry. So you can only take that so far. Whereas if you bisect his career and reduce him to a graffiti artist, that has a certain amount of indie cash in the art world. So they start to make this argument in their conversation that Keith is sort of left out of the canon of art history in some ways, especially in critical narratives, and his practice is reduced to feel-good graffiti. Mm. The way in which AIDS wasn't, and in many ways still isn't, processed by the mainstream, for instance, if you leave Herring out, you also leave out a very particular narrative around activism, one that complicates art history, but also complicates what activism itself looks like and how it's expected to perform. Mm -hmm. And Scott says, yeah, we forget how difficult it is to get the message across. The message was not being communicated and thousands of people were dying because the information wasn't allowed to be disseminated. Joanna says, right, so you erase all the real impetus behind the work and the whole medium with the message construction is rendered illegible. What's left is a cipher. Mm -hmm. So they talk about the difference between Keith's work and like feminist work that was kind of going on at the same time, like Cindy Sherman and Sherry Levine. And they were essentially seen in different universes because Sherman's and Levine's of the world were using a more critical strategy and Keith's engagement looked very different. And Scott says, which is kind of brilliant because he wouldn't have been trying to speak to us anyway because, you know, he wanted to reach an audience that was immune to this kind of language and ideas, which is what you were talking about with your grandpa. Mm -hmm. He wanted to reach the he wasn't speaking to the choir, basically. So they give an example of a video. There's a video and he's in the subway drawing and the crowd is watching and he draws two men hugging and an old woman asks all judgy why two men are embracing and he says oh well it's about brotherhood and brotherly love and she changes her tone and she tells him it's nice or something and that was what his whole thing was he wasn't trying to preach to the choir his goal was to get the message to the people that didn't want to hear it and even then he didn't stop making dick drawings (laughs) or orgy drawings or whatnot he wasn't trying to be mr agreeable or middle of the road but he wanted to capture the attention of those who might not agree mm-hmm. with him. So um, just real quick, I got all my information from Keith Herring Foundation website, Sotheby's, Bob Magazine, GayLetter.com, Albertina Press Kit, the International International Institute for Conservation of Historic and Artistic Artworks, and Rolling Stone. And that is Keith <laughs> Herring. We made it. We did it. Okay. I just want to say real quick because... I didn't not like Keith's work, but I also wasn't someone who was like, I love Keith Haring or feel connected to it. It did feel mainstream, mostly because I saw a lot of it in Urban Outfitters and places like that or everyone wearing his T-shirts. 
having learned more about his background and his thoughts on making art and the accessibility of art, I have such a softer spot for him and his work. In the sense, even driving around today when we just had done the first part of the recording, I was like, I'm yeah. so excited to keep learning more about Keith and like, oh, <laughs> there's a so Keith happy. piece and there's a sculpture <laughs> and there's this. And like, uh-huh. I feel connected. And I hope people who listen to that feel that in the way, like when we were at the museum and we get, or I do specifically, so excited when I see work from one of the artists we cover because we have this background information now where it does feel in this weird way like there are buddies now or like I absolutely feel like it's my friend. Ruth, Mark, like all of these people. I get so excited. Really what I hope this podcast can be able to keep doing is excite people, give them information to feel like they belong at a museum or any kind of space hope is like a non-threatening way to learn <laughs> about except when we fight sorry guys <laughs> i think it's so very awkward how it's real <laughs> that's just our relationship yeah. we get along 99.9 percent yeah. of the time and then very much zero one we very disagree <laughs> and then we just are like anyways well, Lindsay's better at this anyways <laughs> we should just move on now because i know we're not gonna agree <laughs> um but yeah like i feel We just want you to know that even we feel that way at a museum, like Mm -hmm. even being able like being artists and like having some more context than than non-artists, maybe I think everybody pretty much feels that way at a museum. We're like, I like this, but like I don't have that much background on it and I don't really know. And like it's a whole different experience when you know all sorts of things about it. And so we yeah, we really, really genuinely a love making this because we force ourselves to get that context about specific artists and like i'll never forget any of these yeah. artists like they're burned into my brain i know their whole life story <laughs> yeah. i feel like they're my friends and um we really hope that that happens for you too so and even in the room and- today when all those people were drawing ruth Asawa's wire sculpture and like do you know my friend ruth yeah <laughs> Let me tell you about my best friend. Excuse me, guys. Just real quick. We're giggling because our friend is in a famous museum. (laughs) Like, (laughs) And right over there, that's our other friend, Eva. Yeah. Also, Keith would want you to feel welcome. Yeah. When did we come up with it? We came up with a saying that now we've used many times today, which is Keith would do it. Keith would do it. So if you ever feel like you're not sure about something, just know that Keith would do it. He would like he would never stop. And he'd be like, this is what I'm doing. I don't even need the art world's permission. I'm just going to do mm-hmm. it. Audience first <laughs> needs to be made and it needs to be hung up somewhere. And if someone rips it up, I'm going to put it back together. Mm-hmm. Like that is a whole fucking attitude. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> He's a good guy. I loved it. Good okay. job. You did a wonderful job Thank presenting you. this. Okay. Okay. Love, love you. you guys all so much. Bye. Bye bye.